From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 114 of the Killing It Podcast. I'm Carl, and I'm joined today by Dave and Ryan. As always, the weather continues to be good, and the world continues to open. There's not more, much more I can ask for. No, it's true. And by the way, for those those tracking the uh, insect invasion, you can hear them in the house now. Wow. <laughs> and, and to make it even more interesting, I saw a television program segment yesterday in which they reminded us that if you wish... They can be prepared and eaten because they mm. are apparently in the same family as a shrimp. And, yeah. and apparently that's what they taste like. So if you wish to eat cicadas, you may. Um, I don't think I'll join you. Yeah, so no, thank you. <laughs> what I've learned from many years of travel is everything that you boil in oil and put salt on pretty much tastes the same. Exactly. Kind of like you, oil and salt. You, you, could, you could tempura a shoe. And it would be pretty good. Well, that's why they sell like, uh, you know, doughed and fried Coke or ice cream at the state fair. It's like, yeah, it just tastes like fried dough. But yeah. Right, exactly. Fry, any fry, the fried bit is the delicious bit. <laughs> but I, but I won't we, be going to the Virginia State Fair this week, let me just tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But speaking of uh, concession stands, uh, there are things opening in this world, Carl, to, uh, to your observation. Uh, places to go, people to be around. Oh, yeah. And with a reasonable degree of confidence that uh, as long as the people attending this thing are vaccinated, you're, you're actually okay to come out of your, your, your troll hole. It's very hard <laughs> for me. I, I, I got very good at masking up. That just became natural behavior. And I, in the last two weeks, have now gone to things without my mask. Why didn't you give me this delightful title of the troll hole 11 <laughs> months ago or 12 months ago? Why are you well, so because you would have used it for 11 months. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, uh, that's the way I've been feeling as I come blinking back out into the sunlight. <laughs> It has been. It has been certainly been fun, but for me, it's it's it, the I emerged back out, and now it's noisy, and so maybe a little bit more in for a little while. But uh, you know, at least the weather's good. There well, this go. week, gents, we are brought to you by our friends at Ignite. Are you still using on-prem file servers and VPNs to share files with remote workers? Ignite is a business class cloud sharing solution that works more like your on-prem server than other solutions. With a security first approach to file sharing and collaboration, Ignite offers multiple options for sharing files and collecting files from outside sources. And do it all addressing data governance and compliance. Want to learn more? Check out ignite.com slash MSP. And when you do, tell them we sent you. So I got to say, this is not part of the, the paid promotion. Uh, we adopted Ignite to solve a specific problem within our company, and it is pretty awesome. So, And it replaced a solution that, for whatever reason, had gotten more and more expensive every year for the last uh, 15 years. And all I could think of is, well, wait a minute, isn't the price of storage going down? Like, there's something wrong here. So it, it turns out to be an excellent solution. Hey, Carl likes it. 
Look at that. There you go. <laughs> well, our first topic. So I/O was Google I/O was just recently, and they've uh, introduced their new mum. Uh, not for not for the British, not your mother, uh, but the multitask United model. According to Google, this new language model is a thousand times more powerful than BERT, which they released in 2019. It's coming to some products in the future. BERT, of course, is their bi-directional encoder representation for transformers. And I smile and go, of course, because uh, did, did you know about BERT? And did you know it's getting replaced by mum? <laughs> well... I do have to say, Bert did not change my life in 2019, given that I missed its introduction and uh, didn't notice a thing. On the other hand, I think if something is supposed to be a thousand times better, that I should notice the difference. I mean, like, I'm going to see, like, how much more sophisticated it can be. I know that they've added some fairly cool functionality to Google. I'm just waiting for them to put it in my face so I can try the really cool stuff. Well, well, or is that the point, though, that you that it isn't actually in your face? See, I would have I would have said that my takeaway here was that we're having these incredible advancements, and they aren't at all in my face. I am well. So here's unaware. what I mean. So I, I, unlike you guys, I happen to date. So every once in a while, my daughter will say, "Hey, did you do you know know about this or that?" There's a function where you can take a picture and upload it to Google and say. Go find this person, and they will find other places of where that picture appears. So whether it's an advertisement or uh, a police record or whatever, you can find them. That is not a feature that I would say is hidden, but it's certainly not a feature that I knew about until somebody told me about it. So this is going to be a similar thing. I should be able to hold up a pair of boots and say, can I get to the top of Kilimanjaro with these boots? And it'll give me the answer. Well, or you can talk to an airplane or the planet Pluto, which were their big, big demos that were quite cool. Uh, but I mean, for me, it's it's the element of like this is the advancement a thousand times better in two years. That's the headline, right? That's the headline for right. me. Was it is moving behind the scenes that much faster? Uh, for to, to look at a thousand times better in two years? Well, that seems that seems pretty crazy good to me. Well, and and if you you know, for those of us who have been in this space for a long time, uh, you realize that an algorithm and the Google one is very sophisticated, but it's still just a string of essentially if-then conditional statements, right? If this is true, if that is true, then you will show me uh, a result in a search uh, for, for their engine. This is the application of AI into the development of the algorithm, which will then go out and seek the information. What, what I think this demonstrates is just how far we still are from the awakening of the machine, if you will, right? To, to get to a point where artificial intelligence is good at a task takes time and development, training the machine and, and analyzing all of that input output to get to where it is as good as a human or better than a human in single instances, that takes a long time to get to where it's generally intelligent and better than anything else out there. If we're improving by a thousand times and it's still going to be confused by some of the questions that I would think to ask it, we're a million miles from the awakening and 
we still have room to go in terms of this technology development. Good on you, Google. I think it's very interesting to make this search capability more powerful, more intuitive, but I don't think it's going to necessarily run the world yet. Well, one of the things we forget is there aren't six or 12 or 15 search engines. There are thousands of search engines, some of which are into tiny little arcane areas of the, the world of knowledge. And part of what is happening is that Google is beginning to say, if you're gonna ask this question, let's say a thousand different ways all at once and try to get information from all those sources, what would it look like? And then try to come back. The hard part seems to me is to come back to you with a page full of answers instead of 10,000 lines of answers, right? So how do you begin to boil that down? If it actually is heading in that direction, that's a pretty cool step. See, I don't know, Carl, you, you say there are thousands of search engines. I, I know two. <laughs> I know the one we all use and then the one we make fun of if you don't use the first one. <laughs> right, but if, but if you were in a specialized industry, you would use the search engine for that industry. Like, you know, there are search engines for certain articles within certain disciplines. There are, you know, search engines for chemical elements and, right, there's all kinds of stuff, some of which is connected to Google directly, most of which is not. So Google has to go find the publicly visible pieces of it. And, you know, the, the SEO prep on the back end, I can tell you as somebody who, you know, runs this whole online community, when we put data up there, we spend probably an hour indexing every single microscopic thing appropriately so it can be found by the external world. Sure. If you don't do that work, it might or it might not be found. It might or it might not be indexed appropriately. So if you, if you want your stuff to be found, you have to do a certain amount of work. Google is taking on to themselves the work so that you can be a little lazier and your stuff will still get found. Well, see, and I think that there is a meaningful difference between a lot of data versus valuable data that can be used for knowledge purposes. Uh, we, we live in an industry that likes to talk about really big numbers. And if you look at the exponential growth of data volumes, you know, all the di digital data volumes that exist in the world, half of it was created in the last 13 months. Okay, I understand that we have a lot more information, but to your point, Carl, I wonder just how much of that information is just another redundant copy of the same document that you already had that I stored one of and a thousand other people stored that same thing. It's not more data doesn't necessarily mean better answers. It's the intuition in the search engine that allows you to sort through that stuff and determine whether or not it's relevant. I, I'm, I was born and raised in selling storage solutions and um, I will always have a soft spot for data storage as an industry and I'm fascinated by all of the volume expansion that's going on out there. But I'm the very first one to say, you know, the most valuable tool in any storage infrastructure is the dedupe function because <laughs> more data is not always your friend. That's certainly true. So uh, I just did a quick look at data.gov, which is where U.S. government supports, you know, the, the posting of public databases. Currently 291,761 databases. By the time this podcast comes out, it will be over 300,000 databases 
um, of pretty much everything you can possibly imagine. So, uh, you know, I, we're not done indexing the world yet. Yeah, I'm dying to know what powers data.gov. <laughs> what's interesting is the, uh, you know, it's a tool that I first found out about it when Microsoft first started publishing Power BI, because it would say, look, you can just grab a database. And they would, they would you know, the training was to go to the audience, which which of these databases should I pick? And they'd pick one and they'd say, okay, that, you know, let's look at, you know, navigation charts. And then they say, okay, let's look at crime stats. And then we'll look at, okay, money spent per crime stat per navigation chart and blah, 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 blah. You know, stuff comes out of it. Uh, anyway, big data, it's the future. And I think Google's gonna help us get there. And of course, all of us will see more and more control of it, the inside space in our own heads to the Google brain. And we, we will no longer remember anything because we know ah, it's in my phone. Why bother to commit it to memory? You sound like Aristotle, you know, his, his big argument was we shouldn't teach people to read because then they can pretend to be smarter than they really are. Hey, he's on to me. <laughs> we, we have said before, sometimes one of my more valuable professional skills is the degree to which I can Google well. And, and I think that it keeps coming back up. All righty. All, all right, guys. So let's move on to our second topic, a positive application of drone technology. Now, we've talked about drones before. I'm still waiting on my burrito, but I do think that there are some really good use cases of the application of technology. The article we're referring to here in the show notes uh, highlights the Chula Vista Police Department and how they now have FAA authorization to cover 100% of the, the area within their city boundaries to use drones as first responders. Now, this is not just some people using some drones for some stuff. It has an actual acronym, Drone as First Responder, DFR. Um, this is a program that not only accelerates response in public safety situations, and it increases the availability of knowledge and protects the safety of those first responders who follow on and get better ideas. But this is a, a, a neighborhood of smart cities that I think is putting the proof to a technology that's been around for a while searching for an application. Uh, a, what do you guys think about the application of drones as first responders? And, and B, how do you feel about them being that much into your business in every single scenario? See, I'm so torn. You hit on both sides. It's like on, on one hand, you're like, okay, I get it. Like that makes such sense to be able to take a look at something as a as a first response the second is oh my god there's cameras flying above my head all the time i guess the the, the comfort i'm taking uh, on this is is i like splitting the middle of if there is a human dispatching to go ahead and say i'm going to use this to go find something and respond to an incident and gather more information kind of i'm giving the thumbs up because of the human involvement i'm wary of the idea of let's just blanket with cameras, but I don't believe that's where they're going with it. But you can see an inclination to automate away and say like, well, we'll just have these things always flying around. I'm not sure I'm so cool with that, but I love the idea of saying, we're gonna use technology to gather more information in a way that's safe, in a way that doesn't necessarily mean that the first response potentially is an armed human 
arriving on scene, this may, that allows you to put the right resources into the right place. So I had an, uh, kind of an odd flashback last week because um, one of the people who used to do traffic reporting in Sacramento passed away. And so he, for literally 30 years, Commander Bill was the guy who flew around. And, and I realized my daughter, who is now 29, has never lived in a world where there were copters and planes flying around at drive time, right? Like that world used to exist. And what would happen if there was a, a brush fire? Well, they would fly over there and report on that. And what happened if there was somebody running through backyards trying to get away from the police? They would fly over there and report on that. And so there's like, we, we've kind of had a past with some of this. Um, and so I'm not completely opposed to it, um, and I do like the idea that if there's an urgent situation, you will have film immediately of what is going on and you'll have eyes on the situation. So if the police realize, well, this isn't a police matter at all, they, you know, send the fire department or send the ambulance or whatever, uh, they can do that. So it, it has some clear advantages, but uh, I always have to come back to who owns that, that data? Right. I mean, we have all these cameras growing up everywhere. Where's our publicly viewable, searchable databases? Right. Well, I'm paying for that. <laughs> Can I see it? Yeah. Yeah. You are not just the data, but you are the action in the community that is being tracked and analyzed. But you are not given access to that information. Right. I, I think, again, in the pros and cons here, the pros, I believe, we just had a, a story on the news up here in the Pacific Northwest about uh, a program, formal program, where public first responders are launching, launching a response protocol in which an armed police officer is deliberately not the very first person that responds to certain types of situations de-escalation and then they get in there and provide social services or medical services, whatever is appropriate. But one of the critics of this approach, their question was fundamentally, I don't think this can work because you can't know what kind of a call you're going on before you actually get there. Well, at least a little bit, at least five or six minutes before the squad car shows up, now you can know, well, it, at least with some enhanced uh, It does accuracy. start with a 911 call, so, you it, know, they have was, some idea. Right, exactly. And and so there, this is an extra layer of information that will move towards enhancing the, the quality of public service in first responders without necessarily increasing their number or relying just on the blunt instrument. The downside that I see to this technology goes back to your nugget in our very first topic, Carl. Um, if, to Dave's point, there is a camera flying overhead all the time taking pictures of me and storing it in a public database, and then you or somebody else can now go on Google and say, here's a picture of this guy, find all the other pictures of where he has been, that's, that's effectively the end of the concept of privacy in any really meaningful sense. And I, I'm not saying we don't need to have that kind of trackability. I just question who has control of that information and what potentially nefarious reasons they might use it. So I would say one other thing is that this 
I, I hope all the IT service providers out there are, are looking at this and saying, this represents an opportunity, right? Because what's, what's cool about this story is that not just that they, they can cover 100% of the city of Chula Vista, which is for all of you who are not from California, it's in Southern California, it's by San Diego. Um, it's not just that they're covering this much area, but that they're licensed to have these drones, multiple drones flying outside of the visual field of the pilot. And that means these are not $700 drones. <laughs> these right. are actual pilots, licensed pilots, expensive drones. They're buying this technology from somebody and they're taking lots of video and they're storing it someplace and they're analyzing it. They're buying these services from somebody. Yes. And the data management, that's a that's a cool bit. And well, I will then my final thought is is now I have learned that Chula Vista is not an item on the Taco Bell menu, but is in fact <laughs> a city. <laughs> a lovely destination. Right. And, and a shout out to Taco Bell. It's cheaper than food. Of course. <laughs> All right. So so our, our final topic today is a little bit different. And we want to start, we want to talk about something that's more conceptual. So we don't have a specific link for you today, but we want to talk about ethical versus contractual obligations. And this comes from several different areas, but in our industry today, we are beginning to look at what we provide and being posed with the question, should you be required, for example, to report ransomware, report the payout of ransomware? Should you be required ethically to back up your client's systems? And so, you know, a lot of the times we get into these relationships, clients virtually always think of their relationships with us as transactional. I hired somebody to come in and fix my stuff. We look at it and, and we want it to be contractual. <laughs> we want it to be, okay, I will fix your stuff if you've got a contract. I will fix your stuff if you have an ongoing relationship with me. Um, but the government has a different view. Like it is actually illegal to pay ransomware in many locations. So <laughs> if you help your client pay ransomware, right? You, you've stepped into something else. So conceptually, how do we begin talking about our industry from an ethical perspective? See, it's, you sort of have to deep, deep, breathe deeply to do this one because it's, <sighs> it's the, 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 I mean, there's there's a lot of elements of this. First of all, I start from the simple place of I want to sleep well at night, right? Like there's there's a certain degree of I want to do things that I that are in alignment with my own personal values um, of the way that I do business, you know, and and the certain things that I want to stand for uh, because I want to sleep at night <laughs> because, because I want to be clear on that. Uh, there are engagements. There are ways, oh, there's a way of doing business that I believe is the way that I want to conduct myself because it reflects who I am as a human being. I then, then go further into say like, I will build my service offering in a way that doesn't violate those tenants and fits the needs of my customers. And then finally also is in a, you know, clearly has to be in alignment with the laws and regulations of the area that I serve. Now, ideally, of course, you know, my own ethics would be easy to fit into that framework, but you do have to check it just to make sure that, that along the way. Um, that said, you know, I mean, the minimum viability is the, it must be legal and it must be documented, right? And then the other bit is around your social capital. 
right? First off, I do want to sleep all at night, so I will only do the things that I believe in. I also believe I trade in social capital with those that I work with, but I also don't want to overvalue that. You know, for example, like the, the, my measurement is oftentimes simply the transaction. Did I deliver slightly more value than what I cost? Um, you know, the, the rest is for my own gratification that I can sleep at night. Well, and this is a function of the maturing of, well, not just our industry, but of any industry. In the beginning, a new thing is done. It is a capability that did not previously exist, and somebody figured it out. And gradually, over time, more and more people do more and more within that area. In the beginning, nobody knows what it is, and therefore, it is both impossible to to define and impossible to limit within those ethical boundaries. You just are figuring things out, and you're trying hard. But as an industry matures, you get to a point where there are generally accepted principles of what is acceptable and what is not. I have said the phrase many times and more in the last 14 months than ever before combined that I believe if you sell a computer system or a service associated with that that is not inherently secure or you do not either A, do something to make it secure or B, disclose that inherent insecurity, that's what I refer to as technology malpractice. Now, that's only a, a turn of phrase because our industry has been immature enough that we've not yet codified practice and malpractice. And I would argue we're getting there today. We are there or beyond a place where I don't I see again, I don't believe that cybersecurity is a luxury. I don't believe that cybersecurity is uh, above and beyond. I believe that if you're putting information out there into the world or if you're putting devices and systems and connectivity into the world and they come with vulnerabilities and you're not doing anything about it, that whole first do no harm thing that the doctors all comply with, we're running afoul of that fundamental ethical principle. And it's high time that we get to the level of we assume that we are responsible for making the world better, not for making it less. Well, and, and you guys are both talking in terms of we assume or I assume for me, but we also need to speak to other people. Like, what are the what are the requirements for being in this industry? Well, there's nothing. Right. So how can I hold somebody else responsible when we started when we're all of an age when we started in this business, we competed with people who resold stolen software. Uh, they, they took apart action packs from Microsoft or MSDN uh, software and they resold that to clients. They sold the same CD a hundred times. Right. They registered the hardware and software in their own name so they could hold clients hostage. I consider all of that to be immoral, but that was the industry that we started in. I, I mean, I probably the first two years I was in business, all I did was help recover clients from bad actors. <laughs> right? And so I do believe there is an actual right and wrong way of doing things in this industry. And I think we kind of assume that everybody agrees on that and everybody agrees what it is. That's not necessarily yeah, a good assumption. That's kind of in a way where I was going because Ryan I was going to push back a little bit on the a bit like the can you sell security because I actually like 
and the way you phrased it, because I actually think it's a it's a model of agreed risk management and agreed risk tolerance. And let me let me do a completely fun, silly example to make my point. Right. So uh, I have an old uh, Nintendo DS, which does only supports a very old Wi-Fi standard. Right. Like it can only do the old, very crackable WEP if I want to do anything with that device. Uh, and I've been flirting with the idea of trying to get it online, do some gaming with it. And I'm thinking about putting together a very insecure little wireless network that I've isolated it off. And I know that I run, I am exposing a risk of someone essentially hijacking, stealing a portion of my internet connectivity. And I'm considering making that choice in order to use the device. In that model, it's a it's a you know I've, it's silly it's fun but there is a risk tolerance that i am accepting in exchange for a potential benefit right that the i'll be able to use the device but i've exposed this bit it's the openness of the exposure if i was having that conversation with another person if they were using it and we were agreeing on the risk model that's where i would say like okay it's an agreed upon risk taking and thus it's okay where I find that the, the big issue is, is that where the, the risk tolerances are out of, out of whack. And to Carl's point, the I am uncomfortable with a risk level of stolen software, for example, and I'm not comfortable with that engagement. I will not choose to do business with clients that are comfortable with that because of the misalignment. And I think it's much more around thinking about that from a risk tolerance perspective. Well, it's also the case if you made that agreement with me, we would both understand the risk. If you made that agreement with a client, they would be like, yeah, W-E-P, yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right? I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, but about. my job is to translate that. My job as the technologist right. is to translate that risk into something that they can understand. Right, yep. and that's exactly my point is that that because there's this differentiation, it's like you and a doctor. Doctor can say, this is the moral thing to do. And you say, okay, doc, do that, right? <laughs> right. So if you go to a client and say, "Just you should just do this, there should be a standard by which we measure whether or not you are being ethical with your clients. Yeah, Sorry. see, and that's, right. that, that's where I will go. You, I agree with you completely, Dave. I, I was looking at it with the two different standards. Number one, either you make some, if you put it into the world, you do so securely, or that any insecurity with it is accurately disclosed and can then be used to understand and make that kind of an informed decision. If you want to use something that, and again, we do this in medical, we do this in legal, in financial, we say, this is what is acceptable. This is outside the bounds of what is acceptable. But if you want to do that thing, knock yourself out, right? Like you get to go and make that decision for yourself. I think that that's the level we've gotten to as an industry that we are no longer it's no longer okay to sell something and just say, buyer beware, you're the customer, it's your responsibility to figure out the security of it. I, I think that represents an industry uh, escalation of responsibility, but I also see it as a tremendous business opportunity for service providers that you know your clients do not know these standards, that they are not qualified to be secure. And if we go to them and say, now, the way the industry works, the way we expect to behave, I insist that you are there. Well, who are they going to turn to? 
you and anybody who's got that certification. I think it's a great step forward in professionalism. Well, sell that. <laughs> sell that, exactly. And we shall return to this, I promise you. But for now, I'm afraid we have come to the end of episode 114 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.